Well, good evening. As Jared alluded to, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. So not to disappoint, if you want to make your way that direction with me, we're going to be in the 11th chapter as we uh, work our way towards the close of the book over the next few weeks. And what we're going to be covering specifically is uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. But let me remind you as we make our way that direction, what we're seeing is uh, the vantage point of Solomon as he ends his life and his career. So this would be uh, his final writing as he really looks back upon how things have gone, how things have uh, transgressed. And in chapters 1 through 6, we see the vantage point of Solomon the hedonist. So Solomon, uh, it, through this portion of his lens, he's really uh, showing us how he's pursued every kind of pleasure imaginable, every, every lust, every possible thing he's gone on after. And at the end of it, the result is hevel, this Hebrew word for vapor or smoke. There's nothing to it. There's no value there. And so then in chapter 7, what we see is a transition for Solomon. We see him, instead of Solomon the hedonist, he's now a little bit older, uh, looking at things as Solomon the moralist. So now he's the Midwestern, red meat eating, drive down the, you know, drive on the right side of the road at the speed limit kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he's got this vantage point of an older person. Do, do anybody, does anybody know, like as we get older, our vantage changes and, and we can see things in a different light? But I'll tell you what, things hurt more. Have you noticed that too? Like things hurt, like being in bed all of a sudden is a challenge. Like getting out of bed hurts. I went with the youth a couple years ago to Camp Allen and they had this awesome water slide, which was like a, a, a slip and slide they laid out on concrete. And you go down that thing and it hurts of course, you don't stop doing it because it's awesome, and you want to show the youth that you're faster than them. But by the end, by the time I went down at 5,000 times, I think, to prove that I was faster than all the high school kids, my whole right leg was completely bruised. I got home, and Angela's like, what on earth happened? Why are you limping? I'm like, because of the water slide. It's like, that's like the least athletic thing you could possibly do, and you hurt yourself. But that's what happens as we get older. So as we get older, our perspective changes. Hopefully, our, we're a little bit wiser, and we don't go down the water slide 5,000 times. But from Solomon's standpoint, where he's at now in chapter 11 is, uh, I put up there a George Strait title, just give it away. It's time to eat, drink, and be merry, and just give it away. So pick up with me, if you would, in chapter 11. We're going to cover these first couple verses as we get started tonight. So... In verse 1, we see, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. So to begin with, what we see is Solomon giving us investment advice. That to cast your bread out on the waters, for you will find it after many days. So, so throw things out there as you're giving it away, as you're, as you're blessing people, or as you're investing, if you want to look at it that way, to spread things out, to spread the wealth, right? And then in verse 2, we see him suggesting to not only give a, a serving to seven, but also to eight. He's saying, don't be stingy as you're giving. So as you're spreading out the wealth... If you want to call it diversifying your portfolio, right? He, Solomon's looking at his 401k. You don't want to put everything in the conservative side. You want to be a little bit conservative, a little bit aggressive. You want to put some money in bonds. 
I don't know if any of you do this, but you notice like whenever one thing is actually successful and you're feeling pretty good about that investment, you've got another one in the portfolio that completely tanks. So you end up with basically right down the middle. You don't make a whole lot, but you know, this is what Solomon's saying. You don't want to miss anything, so just sort of spread it out there. And that's his investment advice or even his giving advice. So then the question is, what does the Lord say about investments from a spiritual realm? Uh, what Jesus says in Matthew 10, uh, 8, as he's addressing his disciples, is freely you've received, freely give. So as Jesus has given gifts to his disciples and sent them out, he's saying, listen, I've given these things to you freely, so freely give them out. Now Solomon, in, an, in another one of his writings, in Proverbs 19, verse 17, if you turn to the left just a little bit, uh, we covered this a year or so ago as we were working through this writing. He says, And he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, capital H, will pay back what he has given. So the promise here for lending to the poor is that you're actually lending to the Lord, and his promise is that he will repay. So now we see, okay, if I'm, if I'm not going to be stingy and I'm going to give to the poor, I can rely on the Lord to repay. But... As good investors, we're going to ask, well, you're going to repay, Lord, that's great, but what kind of an ROI do I get? What kind of return on my investment am I going to see from giving to the Lord? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6 in the words of Jesus. This might be a familiar passage. This might be one you've even got highlighted in your Bible. If you don't, maybe you'd like to. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, what Jesus says is, Give, and it will be given to you good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, he will put it into your bosom. Now that's a pretty awesome return on your investment, right? So we know that if we give to the poor, we're actually relying on the Lord to repay. How will he repay? Well, he's going to repay in, in spades. He's going to pay this thing out with a tremendous return. So we know then that, that our giving shouldn't be stingy, should be, should be giving because we were freely given to. Which brings us to... Uh, traveling to Poplar Bluff a couple years ago for a gymnastics tournament. We went down there, and it was in December time frame. So after this gymnastics tournament, I've got the kids in the van, and Angela decides we need something at Walmart. Walmart in Farmington isn't good enough. Let's stop at the one in Poplar Bluff. That's got to have stuff that we don't have in Farmington. And in December, you know it's not going to be busy, right? So we get to the Walmart parking lot, and it is packed, so packed you can't even find a spot to park. And at this point... Uh, this love machine is hungry. you got to feed me. And I'm looking for the Taco Bell. I know it's around the corner. So I begin to gripe about the parking lot. So she says, it's fine. We can just get whatever we need back home. So I turn around, and as we're turning the van around, we see a little minivan with the door slid open and a little girl holding a sign that says, uh, homeless, please help any way you can. So my daughter in the back seat says, Dad, there's a little girl there, and she's got a sign saying that they're homeless. And so me, uh, being the caring uh, person who's hungry for a beef Mexi-Melt, says, honey, you can't believe everything you see on these signs. Like, you can't just, you know, you never know. These, sometimes these people scam you, and I'm giving her all the reasons why uh, I'm not going to give. And besides, have you ever had a beef Mexi-Melt? They're tremendous. They really are. I mean, they're, they're really wonderful. And so I pass right on by and out the Walmart parking lot and on my way to Taco Bell. I'm so happy with myself. Um, when about this time, my wife, who I affectionately call the Blonde Holy Spirit, begins to, sp she loves that nickname, she begins to speak into my life. 
she begins to share with me a conviction, which apparently I needed at that point. She said, did you really just say that to her? Really? I'm like, what? It, what? Say what? She's like, I mean, come, come on. You couldn't have been a little more sensitive? Because Cameron's crying in the back that we didn't help this little family out. Like, well, I'm hungry. You know, I mean, listen, we didn't have time for this. I needed to eat. Look at me. I'm, I'm shrinking away to nothing. So we pull into the parking lot, and as it happens so often with the blonde Holy Spirit, it takes a little time to set in, takes time for the anger to, to fall off, and then I realize that she's right. So I put the car back in reverse, I turn the van around, and we head back to Walmart. And what do we find when we pull into the Walmart parking lot? No minivan, no little girl, no sign. They're gone. Instead, we find a, a grouchy old homeless guy, smelled like Mad Dog 2020, and I pull a few bucks out and I give it to him, just, to, just I guess, out of feel bad. And we drive off. And so at the end of verse 2, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. We don't know how much time we're going to have when it comes to blessing people. When it comes to giving, that's something important for us to remember. That when someone's in your path, when someone's been put uh, right there for you, that uh, far too often, at least for me, I give the, what we call the Christian no. Hey, I'll pray about that. You need a little bit of help? Let me pray about that. That really means uh, I need to get away from you because uh, I don't want to mess with this right now. When so often the answer is I need to just get over myself and I need to help because there may not be another chance. There may not be another spot to do this in. So that's really what I take away from this, is that we don't know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. We know what's already happened yesterday. That thing's gone. Today, right now, is when I can actually make a difference. All right, let's move on then to the third verse. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls there it shall be. So what Solomon is saying here is that if you see a cloud full of rain, it's probably going to rain, right? Or if a tree falls, there's nothing really you can do about the spot that it falls in. So we can't change where the rain cloud's going to rain or where it's not going to rain. And we can't change where the tree falls or it doesn't fall. What we really have to look at and do is we have to deal with the results. So we can get upset all we want about uh, our situation and about what spot we've been put in, but really uh, the spot we're in is the spot we're in. It's kind of the Captain Obvious Yogi Berra kind of way of looking at things, but this is the place that God has put us. We have to deal then with the results. So then moving on into verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So if you're busy standing around observing the wind and watching the clouds because you're waiting for just that right moment to sow, boy, if I could just find the exact right atmospheric conditions, I think I'd be right out there getting to work, right? Lord, if you just put these things perfectly in my lap, I'll have it all figured out. I've got it mapped out. I'll know just how to help. But the problem is, while you're busy waiting for all these things to come together, uh, you're not actually sowing, and therefore you're not going to reap, Right? And so I had a guy that used to pour concrete for me. His name was Gary Bartels. And what he would say is, I put his quote up there, although I didn't give him credit. Sorry, Gary. Is, I never made anything waiting on it to rain. So this guy was famous in our area 
Because all the other concrete men all around would look at the weather forecast and look at what the weatherman had to say, and they'd go, well, not today, boys. We are going to call today off. Stay at home. But old Gary would pick up the phone, and he'd say, you know what? 50% chance it's going to be sunny. 50% chance it ain't going to rain. And he would pour more concrete in our area than anybody because he just went out and went to work. Now, every now and again, it would rain on him, and he'd have to tear something out. But he had a reputation in our area for getting more done with the same number of guys or even less than anybody else because of this very thing. He never made anything waiting on it to rain. And the same thing's true in our life, right? We're never going to make any headway sitting around waiting for the conditions to be just perfect. We've got to get out and do. And do what? Let's read on to verse 5. And uh, as you do not know what is the way of the wind, or you or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. So the question is, can we even predict which direction the wind's going to blow? And we had a perfect example just a couple weeks ago with Hurricane Michael. Hurricane Michael on a Sunday was a tropical depression. And within 24 hours, it became a Category 1 hurricane. Wind speeds of 74 miles per hour. But then 24 hours after that, Hurricane Michael became a Category 4, almost a Category 5, 155-mile-an-hour hurricane headed directly for the Florida Panhandle with almost no real warning, at least in the realm of, of storm predictions. And I love what, uh, as I'm researching this, what these uh, scientists at the Atmospheric Center at Colorado State University said. This is their quote, this shouldn't be happening, but it is. So every atmospheric condition, every barometric pressure, every high wind shear that they looked at, all the stuff that says what fuels a hurricane wasn't present. In fact, the things that were present said that it, it shouldn't have been fueled. It shouldn't have reacted this way, and yet it did. And then we go back and read, you do not know what is the way of the wind. All our studying and all of our science, it does a pretty good job. But at the end of the day, God, uh, you do not know the works of God who makes everything. We can't really even predict a storm. So I think that's poignant here as we look at this. And then in verse 6, And in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. And so what do we do? If we don't know which direction the wind blows, we don't know what the right conditions are, what really is our response to this? Our response is to sow seed. What Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there with me in a parable, in Mark chapter 4, verse 26, this is the parable of the growing seed. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crop by itself, First the blade, and then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So our response is to go out and scatter seed, right? And then after that, we don't have any idea, just like what Solomon was writing. We don't know which one's going to be the one that grows. We don't know what the right conditions are going to be. But as we lay our head down, God is busy the whole time at work. He's doing his thing, and the next thing we know, there's a harvest, right? And the harvest is where then we're to go back out, we get the sickle out, 
and we're to, and we're to work the fields. And what Jesus shares just a little bit before this in Mark chapter 4 is he shares the, the parable of the soils. He doesn't make it specific to, to where we scatter seed. What he says is just to scatter, but some's going to fall in the rocks. Some's going to fall on the wayside. Some seed is going to be choked out by the thorns, but then other seed, other in verse 20, uh, in verse 20 he says, but these... The seeds falling on the good ground are the ones that are sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. We don't have any way of knowing where that good ground is at until we see the yield, right? We don't know the ways of the Lord. So then how are we to sow seed? I'm not a Bible teacher, you might say, or or I'm not well-versed enough to feel confident to go out and share the gospel with everybody I come around. Well, uh, let me encourage you that what Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 4, is it's the goodness of God that converts a man. You can know all the Bible you want to know, but at the end of the day, it's the goodness of God. How do we know disciples of the Lord? It's through their goodness. It's through our goodness, right? So the people you come into contact with, they're going to wonder why in the world you're different from anybody else. It's because you just have a goodness about you, right? You Just the way you react to situations, the kindness, right? Not driving past the people in the minivan going to Taco Bell. It's the goodness of God that converts a man. So then moving on to these last couple verses. Verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 11 says, Truly the light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. And so what we see here is a contrast, uh, in like what we get so often in Hebrew poetry, light versus dark, life and death. We see this contrast where Solomon is saying, truly the light is sweet. Truly you can have a great life. You can live it up, everything can be pleasant, you can go all the way through, and everything just work out perfectly, but guess what? You're still going to die. At the end of it, in the back of our minds, we still know that this whole thing is going to come to an end. And and no matter how much apathy we have as a society, how much people don't want to hear about these things, in the back of people's minds, there's still this reminder that it's all going to wrap up. And we've never had a society that's more medicated, more addicted to alcohol, drugs. I mean, all the things that we try to do to forget, and yet at the end of the day, the, the days of darkness are still looming out there. And yet, in Romans 6.23, what we read here from the pen of Paul, something we just uh, covered a few months ago, is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if we enjoy the light, the true light, that's, that's the gift of God. That's eternal life, right? So for those of us that have, that have received that gift, that have accepted that gift, we don't have to worry about the days of darkness. It's a beautiful thing. This is how we can, we can react with things um, with goodness. So the question I want to ask you then, in light of that gift, is how are you at receiving gifts? We've talked a lot about giving gifts and gift-giving, The question is, how are you at receiving gifts? And if you struggle with receiving gifts, if you struggle with people doing kind things for you, 
then why? Well, I put a few things up there. I'm so glad you asked why. Uh, because in doing research, um, what really I, I came up with is these four things. There's probably many more, but uh, frankly, we don't have the time, and I probably don't have the mental capacity to cover any more than four. So we're going to look at these four things. First, the first reason why we struggle is we have a defense against intimacy. That if I accept a gift from you, immediately there is uh, an intimate contact, if you want to look at it that way. I'm giving you access to me in a more personal way. And because we are defensive, we're, we're automatically putting up our guard all around us. If I instead reject a gift, I'm keeping my distance I'm keeping you away at arm's length, and I don't have to let you into my inner circle. There's a defense mechanism there that defending myself, my own personal space against intimacy, against real relationship I could have by receiving a gift. So the second one, maybe that's not you, but perhaps this one is. It's letting go of control. As a gift giver, I'm in control of that situation, right? I'm in control of how I give a gift, where I give a gift, who I'm going to give a gift to. But as a gift receiver, now all of a sudden the other person is in control, right? What Hebrews says, it's the greater that blesses the lesser. So all of a sudden I've allowed you to be put over the top of me, which means that now I've got weakness that's exposed. Oh no, I can't possibly show any weakness. So I don't want to let go of control I don't want to show any cracks, any weaknesses, so therefore I'm just going to refuse a gift. I'm not going to be accepting of a gift because I don't want to be lesser than. It's a pride thing, right? The third one, uh, we've got the pressure to reciprocate. If I accept a gift, then there's going to automatically be this expectation upon me that I have to then return a gift to someone else, right? There's this pressure to be reciprocal with our gift giving. And if I'm not in a position to be able to give you a gift, or perhaps not a gift nearly as good as the one you gave me, then I'm going to automatically shy away from that. Or, or maybe in our Midwestern vernacular, I don't want to owe nobody nothing. Right? I don't want to owe nobody nothing. So therefore, I'm not going to accept anything from anybody because I don't want anybody to feel like they have one over me. I don't want to be beholden to you, so therefore I'm just not going to accept any gifts. There's this pressure that's inherent to reciprocate. Or fourthly, perhaps it's this, I think it's selfish to receive. And I think this is one that maybe has been interlaced into our religious circles. That there's, uh, it's viewed that receiving gifts is greedy or it's, or it's selfish, We've all, we probably even told our kids this, it's better to give than receive, right? I think we could all agree with that. It's better to give than receive, but the problem is if we take that too far, then that means it's worse to receive than to give. And if it's worse, then it must be bad. It must be selfish to receive. And so we deny the opportunity to receive gifts from others because we feel like it, it, it brags somehow. It's us being selfish if we accept so, with all that being said, the question is, how then do we handle the ultimate gift? If the ultimate gift is what we just looked at in Romans 6.23, it's the gift of eternal life, how then do these four things look through the eyes of the Spirit? Well, if we have a defense system built in against intimacy, um, the fact of the matter is, 
The Song of Solomon, if you look at it just, if you just read that as a book and you pull that thing out of your Bible, you go, whoo, we're going to be covering here in a couple months. That's, that's, it's odd, right? It's really a love letter written from Solomon to this young Shunammite woman. And there are parts of it that make you, it kind of creep you out a little bit. Unless you look at it under the lens of the Spirit and you realize that this is a love letter in an intimate relationship that God's trying to let us understand. This is the relationship picture that he's put for Jesus, for his bride, which is us. It's the church. And then all of a sudden, when you look at it in that way, and you realize that the, that the ultimate gift really infuses this most intimate relationship, the reason God has put marriage as the very picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church is because it's the most intimate relationship. So then letting go of control, right? I like to have control of things, so I don't want to let go of that, otherwise it might show weakness in me. What Paul writes to the Corinthian church in, Corinthian, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30, he writes, he writes this, If I'm going to boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. So what Paul is saying here is, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. So through the, the eyes of the Spirit, what we see is, is that actually our weaknesses are the opportunity for God to show his strength through us. If people can look at us and go, how on earth did that guy or gal do that? Well, you know, there's no way to explain it other than Jesus. So our weaknesses are the ways that he actually shows his strength in us. Thirdly, then, the, this pressure to reciprocate. How can I possibly repay this ultimate gift, right? This gift of eternal life. What, what things can I stack up in my favor that could ever repay it? Or how can I ever meet all the things that should be required for me to be able to receive this gift. Well, Colossians uh, 2.14, what Paul writes to the church at Colossae is, is this, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, capital H, having nailed it to the cross. The pressure to reciprocate has already been taken care of. What Paul writes here, it's been nailed to the cross. He has taken it away, completely out of the way. So the pressure to reciprocate is gone. There's no way we could ever come up with enough good things. We can't do enough things right. And instead, all those requirements, the handwriting of requirements, instead he nailed those on the cross to be done away with forever. And so then lastly, this uh, this idea that it's selfish then for me to receive. Let me, let me ask you this. Is it perhaps more selfish to not receive? <laughs> right? If you go out for Christmas and you go to that Walmart parking lot in Poplar Bluff that's packed full of people and you buy the greatest Christmas gift for your kids and yet when it, it's Christmas Day and they go to open it, they go, yeah, I'm good, no thanks. What then, right? Isn't it more selfish to not receive this ultimate gift than it is to receive it because the fact of the matter is he died for it so it's got to be more selfish to not receive than to receive so in the light of all this what i want to read for you is and this is out of the new living translation first peter 5 verse 10 i put it up on the screen in his kindness god called you to share in his eternal glory by means of christ jesus 
so that after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. This is what we have laying right here in front of us. His kindness. An opportunity to share in his eternal glory. It's an amazing thing. This is the gift that's being laid out for us. But in order for us to be good gift givers to others, that there is a requirement for us to first be a good gift receiver. So as we leave out of here tonight, I want to ask you that. What kind of a receiver are you? And I heard a quote. It was actually from a comedian of all people. But what he said was this. Is that in order to receive the thing I need, I have to let go of the thing I want. So I have to first let go of the thing I want in order to receive the thing I need. So let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to go through your word. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord. Thank you for what you're teaching us through it. Thank you for this ultimate gift, one that we can in no way uh, ever repay, that we can in no way ever deserve. But thank you, Lord, for this intimate relationship that you desire with us anyway. I praise you, Father, for the work that you're doing in the people's uh, lives that are in this room, Lord. I thank you for what you've laid out there in front of us. I pray, Father, that as we have this decision to make as to how we're going to receive, and perhaps for many in this room, they've already received the gift originally, but there's all sorts of other gifts that you've laid out there, people you've put um, in their path that are offering uh, things and offering gifts, not not to, to brag upon, but just merely to bless us. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to receive those things and that we wouldn't shy away from a compliment, that we wouldn't shy away from uh, a gift just of kindness because we're insecure, Lord. I pray that we would be secure in you and that's where we can have this firm foundation. And then, Lord, out of that, I pray we'd be good gift givers after we're good gift receivers. So I pray all this uh, tonight. I lift it all up to you. Thank you for this group that's gathered. In the name of Jesus, amen.